0: Richard Kessler spent the better part of a decade turning a century-old, decommissioned coal-burning power plant into an entertainment destination at Plant Riverside. On this special edition of the Difference Makers podcast, Kessler and architect Christian Sotil detail how the project came about and what inspired them in the creation of the showplace that has changed Savannah's riverfront landscape. The Difference Makers podcast is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. At SavannahNow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Brimer, and today's bonus episode of Difference Makers is part two of a discussion with hotelier Richard Kessler, the developer of the Plant Riverside District, as well as the Mansion on Forsyth Park and the Bohemian. The first half of this interview posted last week and goes deep on Kessler's background, his childhood, growing up in Rincon, attending Georgia Tech, and his career arc which includes the rise of the Days Inn hotel chain. We invite you to listen to that episode in our archives at savannahnow.com slash podcast. Today's discussion is focused entirely on Plant Riverside, which opened earlier this year on the west end of River Street. Here's the rest of The Difference maker story
1: with Richard Kessler. And I would like to talk to you about the timing, the talking, the thinking, the team, and the tenacity. And uh and then obviously the pro- and we'll be talking about the project itself, uh with Mr. Sortil here in a few minutes. Yes. So uh, the, the timing, let's talk about that a minute. Timing is extremely important to everything. Honestly, I think it would be impossible to do that project today anywhere in the United States and particularly here in Savannah. It would be impossible. So our timing was right. Well what do what do you mean by timing? Well, it was uh it was not uh easy to finance it was a very difficult project to finance very difficult Uh, i hired a new york investment firm to put together the financing for me and they spent a year and a half on it and failed they threw up hand and said we can't do it and i said well (laughs) i'll do it myself then and so then i took it on myself and i did it myself finance got it financed myself And, uh, they sent me a a bill for their, for all the time they spent on begrudgingly paid it. Um, but, uh, they later said to me, we don't know how the heck you did it, but you got it done. So timing was important from financing point of view. Uh, you could not finance that project today. Impossible. The city administration we were dealing with at the time, uh, was receptive to it, um, uh the mayor she was uh mayor edna jackson she was uh very open to discussing it and talking about and she got excited about my excitement about it and uh of what this could mean for the city and then other people on the council uh uh, got involved and was supportive and that really helped open the doors to some good conversation about what we had to do to get such a project Accomplished, and then later on, uh, Eddie uh, Deloche's uh, team came along, and they also have been were very supportive of the project. And without some things that they did to help make it happen, the project would have never uh, got off the ground. Never got finance, never would have happened. So, um, so the timing of finance, the timing of. The, uh, the leadership, uh, the governmental leadership here in the city of Savannah was crucial to it. So those were the big things having to do with timing, as well as this property. Uh, when it came on the market, I was determined to buy it. And, uh, and when it came on the market, I had uh, sent in an offer on it and waited a couple months and no response from uh, the power company. And... Long story short, I got on the plane, went to Atlanta, sat down with the uh, president, uh, Paul, and Paul is a wonderful gentleman, and uh, and he did he was not aware I had made an offer. Well, for some reason got uh, put in the back corner because possibly whoever was handling it wanted some Atlanta development firm maybe to buy to do something with it. whoever knows? Anyway, uh, without speculating on all that. I, I said, I've come to buy the property. He said, well, we have a process, a Richard and um, we have high respect for what you do. And uh, our president, we report to uh, Charles McCreary out of Birmingham, Alabama, very in power. Uh, thanks to the world of you. We all have done some work together and uh, loves what you do. And, uh, and he suggested that I think the time to personally be with you. And discuss it. So we did. I said, "Well, I'm not going to leave here today till I the property." He said, well, "We can't do it that way." I said, "Well, uh, yes, we can." I said, "You can do what you want to do." And I said, "Just so long I pay the highest price, and you have it on the market now for three months, taking in offers or about three months, and taking in offers, you've had plenty of time to know what the market says." And uh, he said, "Well, I can't tell you what it what it is." And I said, "I understand." I said, "Well, I tell you what, let's all add a million dollars to the offer." He said, no, Richard, you can't, we can't do that, and that's not enough. I said, okay, add $2 million to the offer. He said, no, Richard, we can't do that. He said, uh, and that's still not enough. He says, I've got to be sure I get the highest, highest price for this. I said, all right, add $3 million to the offer, and I'll close it in 45 days. Will that matter you? And that brought things to a quiet standstill, and he thought about it a little bit, and he said, uh, you add $3 million to the offer you made, and... You'll close in forty-five days, which is an advantage to the power company. And I said yes. And I said, All I need is thirty days due diligence, that's all. And fifteen days close. And uh he said, Send the contract. I did the next day, and the next day we had it on the contract. We had thirty days due diligence, which to do if you went to any attorney and said you got thirty days to do a full due diligence. On a power plant with all the issues that go with that on the, on the river of addition. <laughs> so, his name is Joe Fultz in Atlanta, Georgia with the Wombo Group. And uh, Joe Foltz was a good friend of mine, and he's been an attorney now for 25, 26 years. does a wonderful job, and I said, Joe, we got a real challenge here, and he said, okay. And so, he went down, to, he lived at the power company almost for a month going through thousands and thousands of documents on the cleanup and what they had done, what they had not done, et cetera, et cetera. And we got down to the wire, and sure enough, um, we got to the point, we said, okay, we're ready to go. And we closed it on, I promised them, December 31st of 2012. We sent the wires to the money at noon on the 12th, on uh, on the 31st of December at noon, so that's how we got the property, that's how we bought it, and then, so that's the timing part of it. The next part was the talking part. So I had to talk to the community, and I had to talk to the people that lived in Savannah, and that knew Savannah uh, as well, better than I did in some respects. And what we did is I, I created a list of about 30 people. These were civic people, these were people that worked in the city, People that worked in the county, people that had private enterprise here for years and years, and concerned citizens, uh, people in different aspects of businesses here in Savannah. And those thirty people came to the Bohemian Hotel <laughs> and invited them to spend the day with me for lunch. And they all they came curious because they knew I would find a power plant, and obviously they were everybody was curious, what in the world are you gonna do with this power plant on the river? And I said, then well, that's the reason I called you together. And I had two or three flip charts there. And I said, what we want to do today, I want to ask you two questions. I want you to answer for me. The first question, if you own the power plant, what would you do with it? And the second question is, what does Savannah need that it does not have? Because I didn't want to come just duplicate what it already had. So that's no advantage to the city. You're just doing the same thing. So what is it? What would you do with it if you owned it? And what is about the need that it does not have today? And so we talked for the rest of that day about that. And took a little tour of the power plant. And we filled out two charts of ideas that people gave us. Some good insight. And um, and then 30 days later, I did the same thing. I did it again, but this time in Orlando where my office was based at the time, which is still based in Orlando. And uh, invited about half of those people to join us. And then I augmented it with other, uh, some other people that had other insights that would build on what we had already learned. And these were people like Christian Sorteel. In particular, uh, he became a, a key figure in that conversation. Uh, had two other architectural firms there. Had some engineers there. Had some food and beverage uh, executives there that were big in the food and beverage uh, business. Um, because I thought thought that would certainly be a major part of what we're going to do. And then we started building on what we had learned from Savannah, built on that. And then I said, okay, we now know all we ever going to know for this project. And so I I broke the team up into three different teams. Uh, Mrs. Sortil was head of one of the teams, design teams. Uh, A a fellow uh, architect, a friend of mine, was having the other one. And then the third one was headed by another architect that, that used to work for me. And uh, so we broke into these three teams, and I said, go spend three or four hours designing what we now believe is the need for Savannah, Georgia, and opportunities in Savannah." So they did. They went and spent three, four, five hours doing that. They came back and did the presentations to the whole group. And then everybody would critique what they had to say and the plan that they had drawn up and uh, what was interesting about it is a lot of the ideas that came forth were similar because they were pretty directed uh, by what people had to say uh, and, and recommendations. But what was amazing, it was one genius idea came out of each one of the groups at the time, I remember. One thing that nobody ever thought about or talked about, but I said, wow, what an idea. And so. Now that we, everybody said, wow, those are great ideas. Those are genius ideas and we have a lot of good ideas. So I asked Christian, Christian was obviously the man who has the ability to pull people, people together, uh, obviously understands desire as well as any architect could. And um, and I asked Christian, I said, would you please take everything that, all of these plans, take everybody back into one room, Christian. And he never told me about what happened in that room. And I said, you have an hour and a half, an hour, hour and a half, to come back with the final plan, Christian. He said, okay, I got it. So Christian, what happened in that room? It happened left. He never told me. <laughs> well, you know, we use a technique that we
2: find really works in public when you get a lot of people together and there's a lot of talking going on. Mm-hmm. We say, talk with your pencil. Really, and that's what you do. Because you can talk all day and not get anywhere. Yeah. But once you start drawing things, mm-hmm. then you've got. You know, they say the picture is worth a thousand words. Yeah. And that's what we did. We got all the designers around the table. and said, let's put all these best ideas in one plan. And they're not all going to fit. So we're going to have to take the very best and take each area of the plan and draw it back. And so we, over the span of that hour, we built a plan. That had everybody's best ideas, and we kept the talking to a minimum, and we kept the drawing
1: full we'll speed. <laughs> uh, well, well, well. Then some the, you came back into the room about an hour, hour and a half later. That's right. That's right. We were, we, you
2: know, at, at that point, we, we were, our, our hands were, uh, were aching, <laughs> and uh, we. I had a lot of ideas in this plan, and we rolled it out in front of you. And I had the team of, of folks that you had down there to, that had been in this session for three days talking and putting us, you know, exploring those different ideas. And as we went through it from end to end, from the west to the east, over that quarter of a mile of, that, of the master plan, every little piece of it started to come clear. And what the most amazing thing, we were, I think we were pretty nervous, so we've tried to put all this on paper, one on one piece of paper for the first time. And you stood back and you looked at it, and you're quiet. You listened very carefully to every single thing we said. And all the designers that had worked on it, everyone presented their their piece of it and built on it. And you stood back and said, well, that's it. That's what we're going to do. And I mean, it's amazing to me to see here we are now, eight years later, every single thing that we put on that map is what we did.
1: It only got better. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget. I can still picture uh, Christian walking in the room. He had it, the plan he had. was rolled up under his arm. He brings it in. Everybody comes marching in. And, and uh, I was sitting at the table and they said, okay, let's look at this. So Christian has unrolls the plan. And I'll never forget looking at it, thinking this is exactly, exactly what we should do. This is everything we talked about. Everything, all the talking that had been going on for a couple of months about this project. Everything was into this so nicely integrated into this plan. And so I said, "That's it, Christian. You're right. This is it. This is, this is the plan." And it is amazing that a plan of so complicated and so many moving parts. I mean, you've got. It, we saw it, and always saw it as an entertainment uh, project. We never saw it as a hotel project, but we always saw it as, a, as an entertainment project and an urban planning project. So it, it has all those elements. I mean, it's got obviously uh, the, the park, the, the MLK Park. Uh, it has the stage. It has the fountains. It has the it has the uh, renovation of the power plant. So it has the history piece to it. Um, It's got retail, it's got uh, 13, 14 food and beverage operations. It has parking for convenience, uh, some 484 parking spaces, roughly 500 parking spaces. Um, It has uh, a swimming pool. It has all of these things that really make it a uh, remarkable uh, plan. And um, so um, that's what it really became and and as Christian points out over the years that we've worked on it we keep refining it and making adding little things here and there that makes it better and better and better and better and so today we end up with um a very polished product uh, we believe that is extremely tailored to the community and and i think is is already showing it's doing what we had hoped it would do is bringing people together bring a lot of excitement and something new and fresh to Savannah that has never happened. And frankly, few cities in America have anything even close to this. And that's what's exciting. about
2: We are
0: speaking with Richard Kessler and Christian Sotil about Plant Riverside on this bonus episode of the Difference Makers podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether you're a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is a centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting ceta.org. Now, back to the discussion with Richard Kessler. One thing that really strikes me about this project is the fact that you've designed some very unique properties over the years. Casa Monica, what you did at the mansion. This is a complete and total departure from what you'd always done before. How much of a challenge was that, and, and how much did you have to make sure you kind of caught your breath and, and took it a step at a time as you went through the process?
1: Well, that's a good point. Um, well, the first thing, obviously, we did by pulling all these people together, uh, the, the people of 30, the, 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 the Savannah 30, uh, the 30 people that we had in Orlando. And the fact of this team that we had put together of architects, some very creative thinking people, uh, engineers that dealt with a lot of the practicalities of what we were going to be dealing with—all uh, of that, all of that made it doable. In other words, it gave me confidence that we were taking it step by step by step, thinking through all the steps. We were thinking through the engineering part of it. We are thinking through the architecture we thinking through the potential of what this place is and what it can be, and so we did not want to under under utilize the opportunity of what this location could bring to Savannah. I mean, we could uh, somebody could have come in and built a two-story um, wall-to-wall retail one some big monolithic building that would have eaten up 90 percent of the four and a half acres. Um, and it would have been allowed, but we said that's not, that's not the right thing to do for Savannah, not the right thing to do on this piece of property. And so given the fact that we had a great team of creative people, um, uh, led by, to a great extent, primarily by Christian and working, and Christian and I working so closely together, we're able to really Fine-tuned every piece of it and felt comfortable. We gave, uh, we figured we did some 30 hours or so of presentations on my feet behind the podium. 30 hours of this presenting to how many? Oh, every commission
2: there was: the planning commission, the current District Board of Review, the Zoning Board of Appeals, the City Council, and, and over and over and over again because none of this project. Fit into any of our local ordinances because you know, we have a very sophisticated system for developing new work uh, and, and doing preservation work in the landmark historic district. But a four-acre abandoned industrial power plant is not what any of our codes and our ordinances are written for. So we really have to start with what's the right thing to do from a planning point of view. And, it, and Richard, you mentioned that this was an urban planning project. And I think that's really foundational here. That This is a large site that really sits at the corner of the National Historic Landmark District, sort of a cornerstone site for it. So really starting that process by saying, how does this site fit into this celebrated, highly visited, uh, and and world-renowned urban plan? And how do the streets from the Oglethorpe Plan area of the city and the Packers Walk frontage and all these parts of Savannah that have three centuries of history, how do you take a four-acre site that's been, it, it, in a way, it's been offline for a 100 years. It's been online producing electricity as an industrial site, but it, it's really, it was, it was a big piece of Savannah's history that had been, essentially, been, had been lost and off-limits. Uh, you know, we, we went all the way back to the very beginning and we realized this was actually one of the most important sites for Savannah economically from the very beginning because it sits at the Savannah River. And Old West Broad Street was Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard today. And that the significance of the west side of Savannah was enormous. And when transportation uh, improvements were made in the 19th century and the railroad complexes were being built, the Central Georgia Railway came all the way up to West Broad Street. So this was really, this site was economically very, very central to uh, to Savannah's economic uh, uh, growth during the 19th century because you had... The interface between the river, which took you to the rest of the world, out, out through the Savannah River, to the railroad complex, which took you out to the rest of America, to the west of us. So this, this actually was one of the first port sites for the city of Savannah. And all of that history was underlying the power plant. Of course, the, the, the obvious thing to see when we saw the site was an abandoned industrial power plant in a four-acre site but the layers that preceded it were really fascinating. And I think that, from a planning point of view, having the opportunity over the years to work with the city on the Downtown Master Plan and the River Street Vision Plan uh, uh, back in 2007, we always knew that one day this site, when it became available again, would be the opportunity of a century to, to really remap Savannah's plan and really connect it again. And that's And that's, I think that idea got fused into all the conversations and got fused into that early plan. So we were always proceeding with this idea of what is the right thing to do? Even if the rules aren't written yet for that, we know that there's an objectively right thing to do with the site. And so all those many hours spent working with the various commissions and councils and boards always started from that point is what is the right thing to do with the site and how do we, as a a community, how how do we accomplish that? You know,
1: that's a good, good, very good point, is that is all the way through, we had to keep asking the question. And, and we kept having to talk to the different committees and council about this doesn't fit into a square box. And this is this is certainly an out-of-the-box project for somewhere, for any, anywhere. Uh, and that uh, so the question always is, what is the right thing to do? Because you can't go to any particular code or anything particular and say, well, yeah, this fits in this box. It doesn't. You have to step back and think. think. And we talked about thinking. This is, we had to constantly think about what is the right thing to do. What's not the expedient thing to do? What's not the cost and most effective thing to do? What is the right thing to do? We see this as a project of 200 or more years. I mean, there's so many buildings in Savannah that are around for 200 years, and certainly Given the location, how the quality, of what this is, is, and how it was built, it should be it should be here hundreds of years this hoteling hotel. Um, so it's um, it, it was constantly it was constantly the question of what is the right thing to do, and the city had to answer that question along the way too. They had to believe in, in it. They had to do, do, do the own thinking and come up with yeah. That is the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do. And we obviously, uh, they say, uh, selling is telling the truth in the right order. And so our job was to tell the truth in the right order so everybody could think clearly about what what had to be done here. So this brings us to the whole thing of the team. And obviously, uh, working with Christian has been uh, really a real godsend, the fact that his office is uh, right here in this, center of the city, historic district, uh right down the street from where I live now has made it so easy to uh, communicate and constantly work on this uh, daily for the last eight years. And it's been a, 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 a quite a, a quite daily and nightly sometimes. Daily and nightly. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a good team. We we had uh, a lot of other team members that played important parts in helping us think through some details of the retail, um, of the food and beverage side of it. Um, We did quite a bit of research and thinking about what does Savannah not have in in the food area. Um, So that's what brought many things about. For example, uh, uh, when I would give people tours of it while we were under construction, we gave people tours, and they would, I'd take them into the generator hall, and they'd look around, and they'd say, wow, I said, what do you think? They'd say, you know, this feels like a museum. Without even thinking, they would just naturally say that. And I had several people say that, giving tours. And I started thinking about it. I said, you know, they're right. It does feel like a museum. And we know it's going to be a hotel, and we know it's going to be about retail, and we know all these other things, but it does feel like a museum. So... Going back to the original question, what does Savannah have that would add to the fabric and the quality of life in Savannah? Well, it doesn't have a natural science museum. Well, that sits perfectly in some of my personal interests over the years. I've been a rock collector since I was five years old. And and the whole geology has always been extremely interesting to me. And so Savannah I thought had an opportunity of having this whole natural science museum, certain an exhibition at least. So uh, it gave us a chance then to tell the story of where does power come from? We try to, um, in all of our projects, we have threads of education that we like to build into it. So when people leave, they're better than when they came. More enlightened, hopefully, than when they even came. And so I said, you know, this is a chance for us to tell to children as well as adults, where power come from? What's behind all that? And so that takes you, obviously, into the natural sciences and geology, et cetera. And that took us right into the dinosaur period of uh, uh, 150, hundred and fifty million years ago, the dinosaurs of survival. And I was thinking, I said, you know, people probably never thought about the fact that this area did have dinosaurs. And uh, of course, we never talked about that. We talk about history starting with Otago yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and uh, Thomas Chiching and, Chichi and others, but we never think about it. Yeah, dinosaurs were here. Uh, Megalodons were here. Um, so uh, you had flying flying dinosaurs here. You had just so much of uh, natural science history, certainly being uh, in the oceanographic areas, uh, enables uh, a really a very rich story. So therefore, uh being uh rock collecting has always been a passion of mine and this natural science thing, and not for you to tell the story of where the power will come from, uh, made it real clear what we were gonna do as far as thematically in power plant buildings. And so therefore we have built some of the natural science museum in effect, uh in Plant Riverside. Yes, it's in that White Cup. Uh we're having a coffee while we're we're talking to you this morning. I uh, know you heard in the background was uh, brewing uh, Mrs. Orteal and other, that's for you, That'll be yes, that's your and, 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 uh, there. and there's milk out there, there's some walnuts to put in your coffee and some pepper for your thoughts. So anyway, I'm really pleased with the way this natural science element has come about uh, in the project. Um, I don't know if you noticed it, but when you come in the entrance into the power plant building, obviously, immediately before you even get inside, you see a um, a two-ton uh, huge quartz crystal at the entrance, uh, all internally lit, beautiful uh, quartz crystal, uh, six feet tall, it's a museum. You come on into the, into the project and immediately on the left, you see a display on your left of uh, a beautiful group of colorful specimens, of uh, minerals from all over the world, some in it. And then on the right-hand side, you see a small thing. And then if you look straight forward, you see one of the largest gears, uh museum quality that exists. Uh, it's about 10 feet tall and uh, 6 feet wide. This is Citrine GERs. And then that's accompanied by Amethyst geodes. etc., uh, six, seven, eight feet tall uh, surrounding And then if you look up, you see a dinosaur. Most, uh, many, uh, for example, the Natural Science Museum in uh, Washington, D.C., has their dinosaurs. I said, well, we should have a dinosaur too. And that will become certainly an interest point for young children as well as adults. And so um, so we have brought 137-foot uh to Savannah, Georgia. Uh, it took two and a half years to build it. It was built by, uh, a gentleman I got to know, um, out in Montana, who is the administrator and runs, he's a paleontologist, he runs the Dinosaur Museum, uh, in a town kind of Binus, uh, Montana. A very brilliant guy, and it took him two and a half years to build the forest. And it was this, this hand piece, every piece is hand card. It is based on the largest one ever found in the world which was found in the 1850s in Colorado. And uh, from pieces of a skeleton that was found at the time and documented, he used that as the model uh, to build our dinosaur. And most of the dinosaurs you see in these museums are all uh, made using uh, pieces of dinosaur bones and et cetera, et cetera that is found. I don't uh, don't know of any one large dinosaur that is fully of um, um, the real bones. They always yeah. used the bones that we found, obviously, to make it. So I was just done in the same way. The only thing that we did differently, we contemporized it. And by instead of painting, him, uh, staining in brown, we decided to chrome him, which was a four-step process that was done in a little shop uh, up in Guyton, Georgia. Uh, and it took them about six months, I think it was, to chrome the dinosaur and all the hundreds of pieces. Um, so, so you have a dinosaur. The other thing we did, we worked with SCAD in their, uh, their little program. Listen, the SCAD Pro, the SCAD Pro program. We um, we hired them uh, through a uh, through their program to bring some creative ideas to what we what we're doing with this whole idea in the uh, at Flint Riverside and. Uh, and one of the things they came up with was the whole idea of doing sound domes because I wanted to have a way to tell the story when people came in without having to have somebody standing there all the time available to tell the story. So so we did some research on sound domes. We found the appropriate ones. We had three in. Uh, we have a local gentleman that's helping us has put together all the filming for it uh, and has done the research along with paleontologists. And so we have a variety of stories. I think mean, we have five or six stories now already written in films, produced, telling the story of how do you build a dinosaur, from how do you build a place called Plant Riverside District, uh, and how do you, and we talk about the geology of the area. So it's a lot of uh, five or six programs already written uh, in place that you can stand under, push a button, and watch the screen and the video tell the story. And is, is you can put any number of programs, which we've got five or 10 more actually being written as we speak, that we'll be adding to it. So, eventually, you'll have 20, 30, 40 programs uh, you can access right there, stand under the dome. Each program lasts anywhere from three to five minutes, and it tells that particular story that you're interested, interested in. Um, the, there is some tremendous uh, ge- geological... Formations that are some of my absolute favorites. We have ten of them that we particularly feature under glass cases, um, and they uh, some of them these geology geological formations go back, according to paleontologists, 1.4 to 2 billion years old. The geos uh, generally go back from uh, around a couple hundred million years old or more, but these some of these particular geological pieces. Go back is more than a billion years old. It's hard to get you get your mind wrapped around a, a bit. What, the, what is a billion years? I'm not sure uh, it's a long time. But um, but um, some of those are really worth seeing. They're really truly really museum quality pieces. We have a number of cases with things like a uh, nine foot mastodon tusk, which is the largest mastodon tusk I've ever seen in all my collecting. Um, you have, uh, uh, you have uh, all types of different minerals and uh, fossils. We have another whole huge display of beautiful minerals and fossils along the uh, pre-function corridor area. Uh, you should not miss and everyone is identified and, and then if you want to know more about it, you can uh, pull it up on your phone and, and learn even more about any of these particular minerals. So, I think we've done a good job of telling a uh, natural science story and uh, the dinosaurs and of savannah. Uh, so, that. so that's, I think, entertaining for folks. What we ended up with uh, from an overall, and then we'll take the conversation where we want to, uh, is obviously in the master plan, we did end up with 419 rooms, but I just described about 200 rooms are related to this natural science theme. Uh, another 125 or so are related to beauty. And there's in the three musics, which is we wanted to build up, we wanted to break up the mass. We didn't want any huge uh, massive building there. We wanted to break it up into pieces and, and offer a, uh, a pathway uh, to the river, uh, which we did. At every junction point we could, as as the roads or walkways came down from the hill, you might say, and under the river, we opened up all those pathways um, going through and under uh, these three distinctive buildings called Three Muses. Three Muses is all about beauty. And so everything about it is really reflects beauty. The coloration, the artwork we use, the interior design, the furnishings, et etc. et cetera. It's just all about beauty and it's truly beautiful. So it, it has its own rooftop bar. We have four rooftop bars here. This is, that will be one of them. We'll open on called Myrtle and Nose and that will open on uh, October first. Um, distinctively different from the Electric Moon that I'll now talk about, which is on top of the on top of the Plant Riverside building, the power plant building itself. So, which I think, if you haven't been there, which I think uh, um, much of Savannah has already, and they keep coming back, they must really like it. They line up, uh, come in, which we delightful for that, uh, appreciative of that support. Uh, that looks really good. Electric booth is truly what it is. It's, uh, it's an electric, um, it's an electric place to come. I mean, the, the people add to it. Obviously the designer is in it is electric itself has a huge area out outside, um, uh, to overlooking the river. And then on the other side we have uh, another one we call uh, we call it in-house, we call it the adult playground. And that's kind of what it is. It has all kind of games and fun things to do. It's at one lower level overlooking the historic district, and it's called the Moon Deck. And the Moon Deck has all these games that has its own bar, uh, and it has a slide where you can you can go up uh, to the electric moon and after you've enjoyed all that, you can take a slide. A uh, sliding board down to the next level, and now you have the adult playground, at the uh, moon deck, and that's another bar and another whole set of different activities that another whole vibe. Then obviously you have the retail, and and we were very particular about uh, we had uh, who we wanted to come be a part of the project, and so we really wanted to uh, support the Savannah merchants. So what we did is we went. And looked at the merchants that were in Savannah that we thought really had the quality and the vision that we did to do something extremely well done. And we handpicked these people, invited them to be a part of it. Um, they they accepted, we signed them up, we worked closely with them, most of them are now open and doing very, very well. They're extremely pleased with progress so far of their sales, and we just now uh, obviously uh, are getting the whole project moving forward. So, um, over the next year uh, they will they'll it'll be better and better and better for them. But they're already off on a great start and some say um, is double the sales they anticipated early on. So, um, I think the, the retail is going to be in great shape. We, we've got a lot of uh, women's jewelry, we have uh, clothing, women's clothing, some men's clothing. We have ticket sales for your rides. You've got uh, one real estate uh, location. A Seabolt Realty took a, a, a piece of one of the kiosks. We've got the popsicles for kids. and one of the kiosks, we've got we've a, got a German beer garden in one of the kiosks. And an outdoor seating, beer garden seating. We've got sushi. Uh, also, uh, in the garden, we have outdoor seating in two pavilions, one uh, about barbecues, barbecues so a barbecue, and one about seafood. And as it turns out, our timing couldn't have been better. I mean, uh, we're not seers, but the great news is that we've got hundreds and hundreds of outdoor seating for all those just venues I just talked about. Uh, seafood, outdoor seating for about uh, almost 90 people. We've got about 90 people. Uh, outdoor seating for the seafood, one for the barbecue outdoors. So that's about 180 seats already. Um, the beer garden, which we hope to get open uh, next week, and the sushi that will be another uh, 30 to 40 seating for it. Uh, the uh, pizza operation. Um, uh, is a beautiful indoor seating, with all glass overlooking the river. But it also, you can see it sit outside, uh, right outside of the there, and get the best uh, pizza in town. So it's just a lot of uh, things going on there. On the stage, we have music on the stage. Music and art is obviously always dear to my heart. We put it in all of our hotels. Um, the Plant Riverside uh, stage is. Uh, is already been very active. We have, you'll have 50 to 100, 150 people at times um, coming to hear the music. We have some top music, regional and local artists performing on stage um, three or four nights a week. We've got, uh, oh my goodness, we put in a very big fountain. It's the largest fountain on the East Coast uh, ever been done. Uh, Color Dancing Waters, which we're still perfecting, uh, which will be done in the next two, adding some more. Uh, some more nozzles to it to uh, beef it up, and make it even larger. That's happening every night. A beautiful presentation. Uh, we have two other fountains, by the way. We have three fountains totally in, total on the property. One of them is a play fountain for kids, which is a lot of fun. And it's very colorful water, uh, so it's uh, it's, a, it's it's entertainment for kids as well as adults. So, and we have. Uh, uh basically the the circus of Savannah. i didn't realize there was a circus school here in savannah until we got into this whole entertainment question and discovered there is a circus training school here in savannah we hired them we put them under contract and they come out on friday and saturday night and they do all type of circus acts and uh which is very so circus so late you might say in savannah so they they bear retaining and they continue to add things to their Acts in their program, so it's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things constantly going on. It is not just a hotel, and the third hotel is is under construction. Third piece of it, all is under the JW Marriott name, which was insisted by our uh, lender. Uh, but even though it's really three hotels, but it's marketed under the JW name, and the third hotel is called the Atlantic. And it's all about the importance of water to survive. The importance of water and fossils and the, and the, uh, the, the natural science, you might say, uh, of uh, what water what water brings. So um, that will be complete and open summer of next year. Uh, that also contains the 500-car parking. That also contains 7,000-foot ballroom. To add to the 3,500-square-foot ballroom we already had built in, in operation, uh, it also has a huge pre-function area with all types of sculpture, sculpture from all over the world. Um, it also has a like, 4,000 feet of live performance area. We did a deal with Live Nation, and Live Nation will be supplying some of the top talent uh, that we will have. As well as we will have. We will source local region, and regional talent to perform in our live entertainment venue. So all that is coming, yet to come, and uh, we have another bar on top, um, on top of the Atlantic, as well as swimming pool, which will be used by all of the guests that come to Plant Riverside District.
0: Again, you are listening to a conversation with Richard Kessler, the visionary behind the Plant Riverside District, along with local architect Christian Sotil. Before we continue, I want to invite you to subscribe to savannahnow.com. Now hold on now, I've got a deal for you. For a limited time, podcast listeners get the first month free and pay just $7.99 a month for a year after that. That's an inexpensive way to reconnect with your community one story at a time. You'll get the latest from Savannah City Hall, find out what's going on with our school system, catch the latest sports happenings, and enjoy a blend of diverse, insightful opinion pieces from our many local, state, and national contributors. Visit savannahnow.com/digital-only-offer to sign up. That's savannahnow.com/digital-only-offer. Now, here's the rest of the difference maker's interview with Richard Kessler.
1: Uh, another interesting thing is that the more we we work with this, as Christian and I talked about it, Chris you might want to go into the whole thinking behind district and why, and why that is
2: important. Sure, sure. Well, really, it is a district. I think that's what makes it singularly unique, to be able to master plan this much geography at one time. The, the benefit is that all of it works together in concert. Um, the challenge is to develop the diversity that it needs to have as a district so it does not it's not painted with one color. Right. And that's what's really underlying it. That that, that was the the call to... The the underlying opportunity was to synchronize it with the city of Savannah and its plan and the history of the site. But then, to let it start to breathe and take on its own expression as you have already described, the different elements of the project all speak to different themes. So the Three Muses Hotel speaks to this idea of beauty and the universal qualities of beauty that... Inspire us. And I think so many people come to Savannah, the, those that live here know that we're surrounded by beauty in this city. And so this building celebrates this universal human need of beauty. And then the power plant takes a very decisive stance on, on the natural sciences and, and, and geology and, and, and a much deeper history. It goes beyond the history you thought you were going to learn there which was the history of an old power plant, to something much deeper, more fundamental, sort of the, the, the history of humankind. And then the Atlantic Building looks straight down the Savannah River out to the Atlantic Ocean and opens up a whole you know, perspective on the importance of water. And really, we think about Savannah and our location and the sort of perched on the edge of the world here, um, the Atlantic building starts taking those themes. So you'll, you thematically, if you move across the, the district, you're, it's not a project, but it's really a district and it's part of the city and you move from east to west and you're presented thematically with totally different ideas, but really big ideas, ideas about beauty, ideas about natural science and ideas about water and, you know, some intrinsic human needs across all times, and all cultures. Uh, so that, that same thinking also comes into the way the buildings are designed and articulated, that the buildings seek to honor those themes and also honor the history of the site. So as we looked at the, the three Muses hotels we moved from, East to west, those buildings actually relate to the Historic Factors Walk area down on River Street and, in fact, brought in reclaimed materials from the old port of Savannah. So some of the very newest buildings have some of the very oldest materials that uh, that, that give it uh, form and shape. So some of the old granite uh, Belgian block that was, was down uh, at the port was excavated during construction. Um, timbers that were part of old foundations from old mills that were on the waterfront it was, what, 400 years old? 400 years old, cut down in the 18, early 1800s, and put in the river, so wood that would have been 150 years old at the time, uh, preserved for 200 years and then, and then um, reused in the site. So there's a lot of thinking about how we honor the 18th century and the 19th and 20th century history as you look at the three muses and you move from east to west, you're sort of building a story that, that leads to the power plant, which is a magnificent building that, that really represents a century of architectural thought and industrial development. But done with such great intent from from day one when it was designed and constructed in 1912, it was designed to last hundred years and more. And so this renewal really sets it sets the stage for the next century for that building. And and then as we move to the to the west to the Atlantic uh, building there, we're looking at a new structure that will be a cousin to the power plant, a larger building, but one that that has the permanence and the durability, and the texture that will be a 21st century building. So you you have a narrative on this site that is again, it's not a single building, it's not a single use, truly really a district, and you're moving. From the 18th and 19th and 20th to the 21st century. So that, I think that, that idea of not doing this, doing this project at once so that it's synchronized, but also doing the project in a way that it's timeless, that it's engaging with every layer of history and positioning the site for the next century, uh, was really, I think the idea. And the project
1: had the scale to allow that to happen in a very, uh, authentic way. I know, Adam, you brought up a question that you uh, told us you would be interested in hearing about, and that is, when you design a large project, what are the challenges and what's the advantages and disadvantages and what are the things that are critical to pay attention to so that what you do is appropriate to the location? And I think all the things we've been talking about, uh, the level of detail, the planning that was done thinking through every aspect of what we were doing, thinking about scale, thinking about color, thinking about preserving all the pieces of history we could possibly preserve. We, for example, reclaimed by 700,000 brick out of the power plant. We used every single one of the brick back into the building, uh, into the power plant building and also into the pavilions outside, uh, into the Starbucks, for example, as uh, Starbucks is built out of those uh, historic built uh, brick. So, um, scale, color, context, uh, use of materials, uh, use of the existing materials, use of the existing architecture that we were dealing with with the power plant, uh, cleaning it up, making it come to life again. All those things were considered and need to be considered anytime you do a large project of this. Complexity, um, and it's just no into the detail. I mean, it's <laughs> it's just no end, even to the point of you know you think about the restrooms. What are your public restrooms? Where are they? Where do you put them? How do you design them so they could they could be cleaned constantly and always fresh and in good condition for you for public use for free public use? Um, little things like that that are important, all the way up to. What materials do you use that will last 200 years, 300 years that will be here?
2: Um, Elements that tie it to the place, too. That uh, we live in a culture where so many things that are done are just off the shelf. And down to every last detail, when you walk through the site, you'll see the benches are made from old uh, scissor trusses, lattice, beautiful lattice work, riveted trusses that came out of the power plant. So nothing went. Nothing was thrown away and nothing was discarded. with there was value in it, it was brought back to the site, so it remained there. You'll see bike racks that are made of these beautiful trusses, uh, and those elements are not only extremely durable, but they're beautiful and they're they're unique to Savannah and to this project. So, so the project sort of operates outside of time. It's part of a broader continuum. There's nothing that you could look at and say, "Well, that's just." What you do in 2020, everything is part of
1: something much deeper. It's about looking backwards and looking forwards. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good way to say it. You're always looking backwards and forwards when you deal with a project like this because it's a respect of history, also taking advantage of the momentum of the history and the force of history, and taking it into the future um, so that it, it is relevant and. Just like this outside dining area that we originally we created with the thinking is that when people come to Savannah, even Savannah's, you like to enjoy seafood right on the river, you know, and here's a place you can go, uh, enjoy You can come with your sandals and your shorts and, and your t-shirts and sit outside right on the river and enjoy seeing these magnificent cargo ships go by. Um, within a couple hundred feet of you, and um, enjoying music, enjoy some cool breezes off the river, and uh, and you're sitting outdoors. Well, it turned out with this little uh, pandemic that we've all had to deal with, uh, which is always a challenge, obviously, uh, for everybody. But um, it turned out this outdoor heating area that we have—I don't—we have, we have a, probably 300 seats that you can sit outside, down deep, um, right on the river, and uh, you're outdoors. You're not have, you don't have to be indoors. And that has been a huge success for us, and people have enjoyed that immensely. So I was going to say, it's notable to,
2: to talk about the, the the articulation of the outdoor space as something very inviting and immersive as we got into the final stages of design and realized what will set this new chapter of Savannah's River off in, a, in, a, in its own unique way and, and what's a, a complement to all of the uses and all the, the public space that's there. There's an acre and a half of parks and plazas. But then the landscape became really important, thinking about this idea of gardens, yeah. the gardens of Plant Riverside. And actually going back all the way to the history of the power plant, it was a victory garden after World War II that was built on the site right next to the historic power plant. We were really inspired by that idea of, industry and beauty and the role in, in Savannah, I think, if we have one big lesson of the world, if we think about Savannah, the forest city of the South, it was a beautiful urban place, but it's surrounded by nature. There's an intimacy with nature. And we thought that's the, that's the final step. As we think about this new part of the river walk, that it should feel lush and inviting, really even tropical. As mm-hmm. you said on the excerpt the world here, in Yoga river. So a great deal of attention went in the last seven months as the landscape started to take shape, and you're going to see a great variety of very unique plants, tropical uh, pygmy date palms and giant taro leaves and beautiful purple heart, colors that would complement the historic brick. Roses. Birth, roses climbing. <laughs> <laughs> Mandibilla.
1: I mean, it's uh,
2: it's, an amazing, it's truly, it's a botanical garden as well. <laughs>
1: as well as everything else. I always enough. say about landscape, it, it won't, landscape, won't grow until you plant it. And um, yeah. I've always found landscaping is some of the best investment you could ever put in a project because it just makes your project look better and better and better over the years. If you, all you have to do is maintain it. And so we really went to some extreme efforts. Is if you just think about landscaping and walk the project and think of landscaping, you'll be amazed at how much thought and effort and investment went into our landscaping program. But I think it was certainly uh, correct, and it has made it even more beautiful and softens it up. It's it's really think about. It, it's really the only landscaping per se along River Street. This this is. The landscape area.
0: (laughs) So you you obviously are playing the long game with with Plant Riverside District, but after eight years of development, you end up opening. You end up opening during a a pandemic when uh, it's kind of hard to fill hotel rooms right now. Uh, How much of that concerns you, or uh, how how do you look forward? Whether it's three months from now, or six months from now, or a year, in terms of of the uh, the success of this project.
1: Uh, good question uh, i've been in this business fifty years now and i'm um, over fifty years i've been through four or five major economic downturns all embargoes you name it i've seen quite a bit in these fifty years um, and the effect on the housebound business this is just another one this too will pass like the all embargo passed today we what we're we're selling natural gas to the world <laughs> instead of importing, and uh, in any case, it's, uh, it's just another thing you have to deal with. Uh, this project is not a 12 or 24 month project. This is a 200 year project, and you have to think about it that way. You have to, um, in my lifetime, over the next hopefully 20 years of enjoying, um, of enjoying it and seeing it grow and become what it was intended to be. Uh, I'm sure we'll see other pandemics come over the next 20 years, and some other recessions, or whatever. So, in all of these kind of projects, you have to think about uh, what are you trying to accomplish. Do it right, do it well, do it quality. And as these things come and go, you will still exist. And when the good times come back, they'll come roaring back. And we, I've seen it before. Uh, after the all embargo, the business. In America, the hospitality gets roaring back. I anticipate a similar thing uh, coming out of this pandemic. People are have tremendous pin up demand. They want to get out. They want to travel. They don't want to be uh, cooked up in a certain, in the houses or, or in limited places. They don't want to have to run around wearing masks all the time. And then, as soon as this passes, and honestly, I think uh, the pandemic will start to peel away after November 3rd after the election <laughs> so I think that's been a, a big problem um and I think honestly the the cure that the different states have decided to take has been um uh, uh, been a bigger problem than the the disease itself and um I think that um uh, I think next year it's going to be a this is not going to be the major topic of next year. Next year, I think, and I'm hopeful, that we'll be talking about uh, going forward again, uh, enjoying what we have built over the years, uh, what Savannah has to offer people. Those are the things we'll be talking about, not some pandemic. And as um, uh, far as ourselves, I've been extremely pleased with response we've had to our food and beverage and our bars that we have open. Uh, the new ones will be opening, the, the Savannah Tequila Company, the Higher Mexican Restaurant, um, the State Chophouse uh, called Spoon and Webster will be opening soon, uh, and I, around October 1st, October 1st we'll open the other rooftop bar, Merlin Rose, which is beautiful, totally different. Um, we've had a tremendous response with food and beverage, so it's been frankly double what we anticipated. Um, so. We're very, very happy with that. Um, so with the hotel, we run anywhere from twenty percent to we run anywhere from twenty percent to a hundred percent, depending on the night. And we have actually had a night or two where we were one hundred percent occupied in our rooms. So and uh, our rates are holding well without having to give away rooms, which is not good for the industry, not good for the the people's business here in town. Uh, because you have to have a profit and some money to pay people obviously and we've uh, we've created over 400 jobs already and before this project is finished over the next 12 months we'll have some 800 jobs created at plant riverside and um, everything from sales to service to uh, you name it it's uh, entertainment it's all kinds of jobs and so uh, it's uh we're off, to, we're off to a good start. I wish that we had more tourists in Savannah right now. We'd probably had a third of what we would normally have or less. And I think over the next 12, 18 months, I think we'll be back to 80, 90 percent, maybe even 100 percent of where we were uh, a year ago. So I'm not overly concerned about it. And the fact that um, we have, we, in a sense, we, we've... Uh, we, uh, we will have delayed one about the, the buildings that will open uh, up in next, uh, summer. Um, I think by that time, most of this will be in the in, in the rear view mirror. So, um, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm not overly concerned about it. I think that, uh, we'll soon be over this and we can all get our heads straight again and start getting back to business and doing the things we need to do to make Savannah a better place to live and, uh, and opportunities to everyone.
0: All right. Well, very good. We'll leave it right there. You guys have been very, very generous with your time and your insights, and I really appreciate it. And, uh, we'll look forward. Well, you're, to, you're, uh, welcome, man.
1: Uh, you're welcome. Man. Uh, and the last thing, is, uh, timing, talking, thinking, teamwork, Uh, and the last one, tenacity, we didn't, uh, address, but just in short, I want to say that anytime you take on these kind of projects of this kind of complexity, um, you, you're you're in it and, and you better have tenacity because there's people and things that, that, that complicate your, your pathway at times that you just have to be, uh, committed to what you're doing, understand what you're doing, believe in what you're doing and work like heck to be sure um, and, and keep talking to people and keep convincing that we're on the right path. We're doing the right thing. And uh, you got to have the tenacity to stick with it because a lot of times, I mean, we've been through some stuff and I won't get into the details along the way of this development that uh, some people would have thrown up their hands and said, you know, I can't do this. I can't deal with this. It's too much. And, and we, we dealt with them and, uh, We've dealt with them, and we've solved the problems that they came along. and And tenacity is one of our strengths as a company, uh, as it was with me when I was at Georgia Tech. Uh, right. tenacity right. Is, is is required in life. So if you're going to take on big stuff, you better be prepared to commit to the effort and the commitment and whatever it takes to make it work uh and don't give up on your dream and your vision you just have to stick to it and be tenacious about everything you you do to uh, make it succeed which is what we have done here at plant riverside absolutely no question about
0: that well thank you again and uh we'll look forward to to many many years to come enjoying uh enjoying things down at plant riverside thanks again wrap on part two of the Difference Makers with Richard Kessler. Thanks to Mr. Kessler and architect Christian Sotile for being my guests. Also, thank you to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. On behalf of myself and producers Asha Gilbert and Zach Dennis, thank you for listening.